This morning, uh, we are going to continue to consider the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible near you, if you brought one, if you have, want to use one of the blue Bibles that are near you, if you have it on your phone, you're going to need your Bible this morning. We're going to spend a lot of time in there together. We're continuing our series in Acts over the summer. We spent a great deal, uh, or over the last year, we spent a great deal of time together. We really finished up the study through the book of Acts over the summer. And uh, here in August, we're going back to consider a few themes and a few questions from our study in the last year. Last week, we considered the theme of church planting, looked at that, saw that really the, the work of church planting is the work of the word multiplying among us. And so this morning, we're going to take some time to consider that word more closely, to consider the proclamation of the gospel itself. We're going to begin with one question. Uh, Matt Hardy looked over my shoulder this morning, looked at the notes and said, that's a good question. Joel Fair looks at it and says, that's a good question. It's really the ultimate question. What is the gospel? It's always the question. Anytime we open up the scriptures, anytime we are going about prayer, it's always the question. In fact, there, there are really two questions that guide me in all of my study of the scriptures, whether I'm engaged in a time of personal sort of devotional reading and study and prayer, or if I'm preparing to teach. I'm always asking these two questions. I would encourage you to hold on to them. Write them down if it helps. Who is God? In the scripture that we read, according to this passage, who is God and what is his gospel? What is God's character? How does he act? What does he do? What is his nature? How is he like us? And how is he other than us? And what is the news that he has for us? What is the hope? What is the message? What is salvation? We ask these two questions. Who is God and what is his gospel over and over again? This morning, we're going to take that one question, what is the gospel? And then we're going to ask that question of seven proclamations. To answer that question, we're going to turn to seven places in the gospel of Acts uh, where there is a proclamation of the gospel, particularly by uh, the Apostle Peter and Paul. I want to give credit this morning, uh, where credit is due, Alan Thompson in his book, Acts of the Risen Lord, he too studied these seven passages. The passages weren't hard to find. They're sort of sitting there waiting for us to remember that they're there. But he spent time comparing similarities in those passages, patterns, discovering uh, essential, what is the essence of the apostles' earliest proclamation of the gospel. And, and I'm encouraged to find that that earliest proclamation is still the proclamation that is made today. And so Alan Thompson deserves credit for helping me and sort of thinking through these seven passages. What I would ask you to do is I would ask you to, again, make sure you have a Bible open. Make sure you're tracking with us. Maybe even have a notebook open if that's kind of your thing. Make sure you have your phone open ready to highlight some things. As we look at these seven passages, I would encourage you to do one specific thing, to put a cross in the margin of your Bible next to these passages. That way you find it easy to go and find these passages where it's preaching the gospel. I remember way back when I first started that practice, putting a cross, or I'd do three red dots for the three nails, right? 
uh, in, the, in the margin of my Bible. And, and I'd started to do that because I found that sometimes in a time of urgent need or just a, a personal crisis or suffering or just a need of encouragement, I could quickly go in my Bible and find those proclamations of the gospel and remember the truth. So I hope that would be something you could do yourself. And I would encourage you to watch for three things. Watch, first of all, for the death and resurrection of Jesus, perhaps even underline it. Watch for the witness of the apostles. Perhaps make note of the witness of the apostles each time that takes place in these seven passages. And then watch for sort of salvation or repentance or faith or forgiveness of sins, hope of eternal life, the the idea of salvation in the passage. We're going to read each of these scriptures. We're going to skip only a few verses in each one of them. So this morning is a little different. We don't normally read this much scripture. We're going to read about 15 minutes worth of scripture together. All right. And so this is an opportunity to study, to pay attention, to remember, to apply ourselves to see and hear, and perhaps be challenged by the Spirit as we do so. I encourage you in the hearing and remembering of the gospel proclamation, to pay close attention, make some of your own observations. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter, after the Holy Spirit has worked so mightily at Pentecost, now preaching the gospel. We're going to look at verse 22 and the verses following. So Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and following. Follow along with me. Men of Israel, he says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You hear it? Did you make note of it? Did you see the definite plan and foreknowledge of God being worked? Do you see the crucifixion? And then we see God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skip on to verse 23. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. You hear that? The testimony of the apostles, the witness of the apostles. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And if you skip on to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain of the certainty of the proclamation that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. You're the call to action, the call to faith, the call to belief. And every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that as we look at these scriptures together, beginning with this one, your gospel would ring clear. For many of us here today, this is old news. We know these nearly by heart. For every one of us today, whether this is the first encounter with these scriptures or not, we are still in need of this reality. We have walked in unbelief. We've already confessed it. We need to remember the hope of the gospel. 
where we need to remember the center that is at the center. So, Lord, I pray that your spirit would challenge us and that you would leave us changed, Lord. We pray according to belief. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, one of the things that you'll notice is, to some degree, uh, the passages that we're going to look at, we're just in the first one, get shorter as they go. Alan Thompson, in his uh, commentary on these passages, one of the things that he notes is it seems that Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, sort of gives us a, a nice, big, full account of the proclamation, and then each time he retells it, he shortens it, sort of saying, yeah, I mean, you kind of remember this already. Do I have to repeat the whole thing? More than likely, the proclamation that actually happens in the later chapters and in these other situations were, were longer proclamations of the gospel, but sort of Luke is, is abbreviating them because he's already told it. But we see some things happen over and over again. And that tells us that these things cannot be abbreviated. It is worth repeating seven times in a book that's only 28 chapters long. These things cannot be abbreviated. We saw them already. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus being raised up. The witness, the eyewitness account of the apostles. The call to repent and be baptized and the forgiveness of sins that is the work of the gospel. Let's look at the second account. Acts chapter 3. You go to Acts chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 12 and following. Here we have Peter after the man, the healing of the man lame from birth, and he is sort of giving a defense of this as he uses this opportunity to preach the gospel. In chapter 3, verse 12 and following, he says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom he delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. You see it? Are you making note from it, uh, of it? I don't know if you want to draw a little stick figure rising somehow or what, but that's, that's a resurrection again, the second time in seven accounts. To this we are witnesses. The apostles are eyewitnesses bearing witness to this reality of the resurrection from the dead over and over again. And by his name, by faith in his name, he says, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus Christ has given the man perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled... Here you have that, that note that gets sounded over and over again, that all of these things were according to the Scriptures. Repent, therefore, is the call, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You have that restoration, right? You have hope, salvation, eternity held out before all who would receive this gospel proclamation by faith. You see the pattern continue in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 
4, beginning at verse 8 and the verses following. Peter, he's before the council in Jerusalem, questioning the council's questioning Peter and John about the healing that happened in the chapter before. All right. So here he's addressing the council, and he says, Rulers, in verse 8, of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by among men by which we must be saved. This quotation in the middle of this passage about the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, the fuller quotation is from Psalm 118. Again, great little note in the margin. Psalm 118 says this, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We have the great working God. That's easy to miss in all of these passages because we can quickly go to, well, this is about forgiveness of my sins and my need to repent and believe, right? But we miss that actually the majority of these passages are actually declaring the great works of God, even in the middle of the rejection of the Son and His crucifixion on the cross. We are told in Psalm 118, before it ever even happened, that that would happen in fulfillment of God's great work. And it's marvelous in our eyes. The gospel is power. Because it's divine activity. Let's continue to look at the next example. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're going to go to verse 30 and the verses following. Peter and the apostles, they're before the Sanhedrin, uh, gathering of, of Jewish leaders. And they're there after the angel has freed them from prison. Okay? Verse Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and following, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. Just goes right to it in this one. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And that's what you say to people who just recently threw you in prison and then had an angel break you out. You just sort of go right in there and tell them, you killed him by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. See, this is a beautiful thing about the proclamation of the gospel. We do not have to be afraid to be found out as sinners. And we don't have to be afraid to be bold, as Peter and John are here, to tell someone, you are a sinner. I mean, here he tells them, you crucified Jesus. Because he's just about to proclaim the forgiveness of sins by that same Christ. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. Who is the first witness of the gospel? It's the Spirit of God, whom God has given to those who obey him. And we receive that Spirit, and we go as witnesses to that same gospel. And we continue to the next one, Acts chapter 10. You've got to skip a little bit ahead for this one. All right, Peter in Acts chapter 10. 
You go to verse 39 and following, you see Peter, he's preaching to the Gentiles in Cornelius' household. This is a bit of a different context. We're not in Jerusalem anymore. In fact, we're not even with the Jews, the Gentiles. And here we are in Acts chapter 10, verse 39 and following. We are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So here he's in a different context, but he's still bearing witness to what Jesus did back in that place. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He wasn't just a ghost. He wasn't just a spirit floating around. He was actually raised. The actual God-man actually alive, eating and drinking with his witnesses. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You hear that? Hear that salvation word? Forgiveness of sins. And that forgiveness of sins is not a new announcement by Jesus. It's actually been announced by the prophets that it would be in the Messiah that forgiveness would come all according to the scriptures. Here we have not only the witness of the apostles, but also the witness of the prophets in the Old Testament. And what do they bear witness to? That through the death and resurrection of the Messiah, there is forgiveness of sin. Go to the second second to last one, Paul, in Acts chapter 13. We've changed messengers, but we haven't changed the message. Paul, in Acts chapter 13, he's preaching at the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia. Again, another region, new preacher, Acts 13, verse 26 and following. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of salvation. All right? So the gospel is good news because it's the message of salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb because he was dead. He didn't swoon. He wasn't switched. He was really dead after the crucifixion, and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. If you skip down to verse 38, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. So you have this eyewitness account to the resurrection again, a resurrection that by which we have forgiveness of sins. Last one, Paul in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching to the Greeks. Again, a very different circumstance. Paul, for the second time, he's preaching to the Greeks at the Areopagus in Athens. Okay, this is a bit of an intimidating one, right? If you go down to verse 29, but then God's offspring 
But then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. He's not an idol. He can't be crafted by human hands. An image formed by the art and imagination of man, he says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You can see the pattern, right? Here we are, the seventh example in a very different context. We have the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have the apostles who are eyewitnesses to these things. And we have the call to repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sin and life in Jesus. This is the core content that cannot be skipped. It must be repeated in every proclamation of the gospel. Now, having those seven proclamations before us, hopefully holding them in mind, hopefully having a couple notes so you could turn to them easily, I want to consider four observations. Again, Alan Thompson makes four similar observations from his books, Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. The first observation is this. Every proclamation is God-centered. Every proclamation is God-centered. You should see that. We just looked at him, right? Who's the worker? Who's the actor? Who's, who's the player? Who's the, the main character in the scene? Isn't it God who is the worker over and over again? Peter and Paul repeatedly launched their proclamations with the work of God in history. In Acts chapter 2, an explanation of the Holy Spirit's mighty work in the streets of Jerusalem to bring the gospel to the ears of the many nations that were represented. And this great work of God is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. So we have the great work of God. And we have the preacher drawing attention to the great work of God. And then we have the preacher saying, the great work of God is according to the scriptures. He told us this would happen. Those are both essential. That we would bear witness to the great works of God in our midst. And we'd say, yes, what he's doing is in accordance with the scriptures. Acts chapter 3, the work of God to heal. But even more so, to glorify Jesus, whom the leaders had rejected. And we're told in that passage in Acts chapter 3, that that whole process was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Moses. Again, according to the scriptures. Acts chapter 10. The work of God who shows no partiality to save even the Gentiles. That is God's work and design. And we're told that it's in fulfillment of the prophets who said that all who believe in him receive forgiveness of sin through his name. Why was Peter surprised? They walked in a certain way, seeing things done in a certain way. But why was he ultimately convinced that, yes, the gospel must go to the Gentiles? Because of the scriptures. Again, this is the great work of God that God has borne witness to according to his word. You see the pattern. You have the powerful works of God about which the prophets spoke and the apostles bear witness. Powerful works of God, the scriptures bearing witness, and the apostles bearing witness. 
And in every case, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always active. There's a, there's a great synergy, a back and forth between the will of the Father and the faithfulness of the Son. Throughout, the Father is the one who has raised the Son from the dead. And the Spirit, the whole time, is bearing witness. The Spirit is awakening faith. The Spirit is sending apostles and giving them clarity in their witness and boldness in the face of persecution. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are active in the work of proclamation of the gospel. You you might remember Luke chapter 12. This is a good one to jot down. Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. Jesus tells his disciples, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And over and over again, it's a consistent testimony. When we hear the gospel in Acts, we're not hearing the creative, though consistent, creative speech given by a group of men. What we're hearing is the testimony of the Holy Spirit about the great work of the Father and the Son. This is a Trinitarian work of proclamation of the gospel that the church and its apostles are simply invited to participate in. God is the first gospel proclaimer. And so all of these proclamations and all of them, they are God-centered, but they are also, secondly, audience-conscious. Audience-conscious. Let us remember again that the the proclamation always begins with God. God sets the agenda by the working of his mighty arm of salvation in history. The proclamation is not, listen, this is important. We twist this in our head immediately and don't even realize we did it. The gospel is not audience-centered. You hear that? It's audience-conscious. We'll see in the last observation in a few moments how the approach can go so wrong. While the gospel proclaimer is God-centered, he's also aware of the person or people whom he declares the good news to. He's not just reading a generic script and then looking up and saying, oh, you're still there, you see. It's not a memorized speech. It's a proclamation in a specific moment, given a specific occasion and context. Now, I don't know if if this is any of your experiences, perhaps if you were... uh, raised in the faith or part of a more evangelistic movement. I know I was trained in how to share the gospel. We had like these, these little training weekends and we'd memorize certain scriptures and we'd walk through the Roman road. It's great practice. We studied the essential content of gospel proclamation. We did it actually a lot like we're doing right now. And then we would practice sharing the gospel ourselves. We, we'd role play. We'd, we'd sit down with a friend and we'd, we'd share the gospel with them. And then we'd just really hope that they'd repent and believe at the end of it. And it felt odd, felt kind of put on, though it was good and helpful experience to sort of process our way through. But the reason why it felt odd is that by design, gospel proclamation isn't generic. It isn't a generic script to walk through. It's a proclamation that actually looks a real person in the eye, right where he or she stands. See, I love that about the gospel. It's a proclamation right in the midst of reality. 
in the midst of sin, in the midst of rebellion, in the midst of rejection and pain and brokenness, a crippled and outcast man even. In all of those circumstances, it speaks a singular word as if it were true for me, right here, right now, in my own sin and rebellion and sorrow, lossless, lostness, a singular word. To the leaders in Jerusalem, the gospel is not afraid to accuse of murder, the travesty of justice, even as told of forgiveness is proclaimed over them that they should repent and believe. You see, you can look in that circumstance and preach a singular word. To the household of Cornelius, the gospel calls out to those who are far off. And he says, you are brought near by this singular gospel word. To the intellectual elites in Athens, the gospel humbles all of mankind before the maker who died and rose to bring salvation to, the scripture says, all who believe. Do you see? It's a singular word, but it confronts in each of these occasions You can see why it's gloriously appropriate to say that the word increased and multiplied. It's it's a singular word of the gospel that grows and multiplies, and it, it retells itself over and over again on new occasions, in new languages, among new peoples, in, in homes, and synagogues, and places where the elites of the city gathers. It multiplies in every place, and in, in every ear. This one gospel encounters countless human hearts. I wonder, has the gospel multiplied to you? Even this morning, you're like, I've heard the gospel before. But have you heard it today? Have you heard it on this occasion? Has that singular word multiplied to you this morning? Gospel is, and its proclamation is God-centered. It's audience-aware. And it's Christ-focused. The goal of all gospel proclamation is to present Christ for belief. It's where all the words are are going. All the words are going to Jesus. Gospel proclamation has a singular aim, a singular thrust, and it's to share the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you don't get there, you didn't get to the gospel. The proclamation is, first of all, historically grounded. I think these two things are so important for us to, to perhaps even realize this morning. Gospel is historically grounded with an emphasis upon apostolic witness. That is, those who were there saw him. They walked with him. They saw him die. They saw his tomb. They went to the tomb in disbelief. They saw him raised. They saw him walk with him. They bear witness to his resurrection and ascension. There's an apostolic witness against the many Greeks. The gospel is not merely a philosophy, a simple set of teachings by which to understand the universe and learn how to behave. It's not a philosophy. Against the many of the Jews, the gospel is not a merely religious practice, a cultural heritage by which a community can thrive. We can fall into that in the church to this day. The gospel becomes just a way that this particular subculture acts. Now, the gospel is the very work of God in history to raise the crucified Christ to life and bring forgiveness of sin and eternal life in his name for a people of all times and places. 
The gospel is historically grounded so the apostles could declare themselves eyewitnesses to a historical reality. But it's not enough to simply say, I've shared the gospel because I said there was a guy, he was dead, his name was Jesus, he's also God, and he rose from the dead. He's alive today, reigns from heaven. Amen. Repent and believe. That's not enough. Because the proclamation is also theologically oriented. I'll explain what I mean. Theologically oriented. The gospel answers a spiritual question that arises from a historical reality. Our sin is not a theoretical or philosophical problem. Our sin goes right to the essence of who we are, how we are, right here and right now. It is a historical reality. Our very brokenness and lostness is, is remedied at the same time by a very real sacrificial brokenness of God the Son on the cross. And our reconciliation to our God and Maker is a glorious Hope accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So a historical reality meets the historical reality of my sin and becomes this glorious spiritual reality of salvation. It is a historical reality that is theologically oriented. So when we speak of the death of Jesus, we aren't just speaking about the fact that a human body died. We're speaking about sin atoning sacrifice. We can unpack that and write songs about that and think about that and read scriptures about that forever. And when we speak about the resurrection of Jesus, we aren't speaking about human resuscitation. We're speaking about spiritual victory and life and resurrection hope. We're speaking about eternity. This is what I mean. We must preach both historical reality, Jesus Christ crucified and risen, historical reality, and theological reality, the hope of forgiveness of sin, and the resurrection of all things. You see, that's what this historical reality speaks of and brings to light. We have not only a God-centered audience aware, we have a gospel that is Christ-focused, and we have a gospel that is response-expectant. Now, it's interesting. If you look At the passage just closer, if we didn't just sort of zoom through them this morning, you would see that there are promises for the gospel, but there's also warnings because there are two responses. There are those who ought to be warned about the danger of their impending response and those who ought to rejoice in the promise that they're about to receive. Alan Thompson puts it this way, it should be noted in this regard that although the preaching was response-oriented, The messages were not, hear this, response-driven. That is, the messages were not compromised just to get a favorable response or just to make people happy. The messages were not put just to make people believe, even if you have to change what it is that they're believing to get them to believe it. The proclamation is made with the expectation that the reality proclaimed is going to elicit a response. The response, on the other hand, is not predetermined. That is to say, the essence of the proclamation is singularly fixed, but it's going to produce a variety of responses. 
It's not a singular response that is fixed and aimed at so the proclamation can be altered in some way to ensure that we get that response. This is inevitably what goes wrong. I said we would come back to this. It's what goes wrong when proclamation becomes audience-centered rather than God-centered. You see, the audience doesn't get to set the agenda, the content, the essence of gospel proclamation. It, or it's not gospel proclamation. God sets the agenda by the working of his mighty hand in salvation history. So the proclamation cannot be audience-centered. And it's this gospel that sets some to mock and some to believe. The gospel proclaimer expects a response but he or she cannot control that response. Here's how it goes in Acts chapter 17. We read that proclamation. It was a beautiful proclamation. Powerful and compelling there in Athens. And yet this happened. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also, and then he names them, were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some believed, and some mocked, because the gospel proclamation is fixed and elicits response. Now, I said there were were four observations. We've done four observations, so I'm going to give you a fifth one. It's a bonus. It's free, all right? If you don't mind hanging out for just a second to hear it. All right, this free bonus observation, commentator Rick Wagner observes that Paul's preaching is framed by two verses. When we're told at the beginning of the Apostle Paul's preaching ministry and at the end of the record of that ministry, we have in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, we have his boldness being declared. At Damascus, he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. That's how it begins. How does it end? Did he burn out after some 19 chapters of proclamation, after many shipwrecks and persecutions and beatings and jail time? Did he burn out? Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. It's really how the book ends. Luke tells us he lived there in Rome, that is, for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and without hindrance. Brothers and sisters, gospel proclamation doesn't just have these marks of proclamation. They come from a witness who is bold in proclamation. This fifth bonus observation isn't about the content of preaching But hear me on this, if our preaching is not bold in the midst of the world that we've been sent to, we can be assured that our preaching may not wind up being faithful to the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ after all. Boldness, you see, it's not just in reference to the preaching in the face of persecution. It's also in reference to confidence against falsehood and contradiction. We're bold because we are convinced We are bold because the gospel is not just a historical reality, but it has reoriented our very lives. When we say, yes, Jesus is alive. It's true. 
And so preaching with boldness makes sense. Our God is alive, and he reigns as king today, and he's coming. Preaching in any other way does more to convince that Jesus isn't alive than to convince that he is. The proclamation of God's word, God's work, it doesn't belong to the preacher by invention, but by discovery. I remember, I told my wife, I was serving as a youth leader at the time, and I told her, you know, I never want to be a preacher. Let's just be clear. You know I kind of want to do this ministry thing. I'll find somewhere we're going to find a corner to hide in in the church, and I'll just sort of make disciples there, maybe read the Bible with people who like to, you know? And then I realized something. It wasn't long after that. I was scared because I thought I had to think of something to say. I thought I had to come up with great stories and, and compelling arguments. And then I realized that the content sitting there. What the preacher is, is bold to declare it. Not by invention, but by discovery. Not by creation, but because it's my salvation. My hope. Any boldness isn't worked up. It's been worked in me. We'll close with a singular clarity. A question that's been on my mind all, all week long, really since last week. Is Jesus alive? Is he alive? I know a lot of you are like, yeah, 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 I mean, he is. Is this a question? We're thinking, am I supposed to think about this? Is this a trick question? It is a trick question. Because if he's alive, what in the world does that mean for us this morning? What does that mean for our belief? We have a living king on the throne of heaven with a promise to return for his church and to judge the living and the dead. If he's alive. If he's alive. We're told that because of the death and resurrection, Jesus, sinners like you and I, who were, who were made by God, have rejected the rightful rule over us in our sin and idolatry, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we may be forgiven of sin, granted new life if Jesus is alive. It's from the gospel alone that we have life. And so, two questions. Two questions to, to reflect on, as Dominic plays in a little while. Two questions to reflect on during communion. Two questions to compel us as we leave this place. Do you believe the gospel. Do you believe Jesus is alive? And will you proclaim that gospel with boldness? Heavenly Father, you've borne witness in your word that if we are to proclaim it, it will be because your spirit has enabled us Lord, sometimes we skip the step and say, well, that just means that, you know, I'll sort of believe in quiet until the Spirit gives me words to speak. But I don't think that's actually how it worked, even in Acts. But rather, your Spirit would work in us that we would discover the gospel. So that on that day, in that moment, in that occasion, when we find someone by the riverside to speak to, when we're at the beach, when we're making a, a purchase at the store when we're speaking 
with someone in our workplace and in our home. In that moment, we have a gospel to declare because it's the gospel that by which we have been saved. We're confident, not because we've gotten creative with our words or we've broken out of our introversion to become something that we're not, but because we've become something that we are, a people who have been rescued by grace through faith. Lord, we believe. Will you help our unbelief? We desire to proclaim. Would you work that proclamation in us and out of us? That others would believe and join us together in the declaration, Jesus is alive. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in that name, and we believe you hear us because you are reigning on your throne. And so it is in your name, in the name of Jesus, that we pray and hope. Amen.